So, my physio, Victor, is really anti-yoga? Alright. Like, I think, I think rightly he sees that there's a sort of fattiness to it, and there are a lot of yoga instructors out there who don't really understand physiology, and they, they sometimes get people to do things that really their body shouldn't be doing. But he has a very, like, conservative... I'm taking care of people with mm. chronic pain kind of outlook. So, you know, it's not, not a slight on yoga per se. It's just like a different perspective on it. Yeah, you, you got to be careful. I, I did see a doctor once about my back and he was also anti-yoga because he was like, the spine is not designed for these kinds of loads. <laughs> these inversions. Yep. Yep. The, all the weight and these small little bones it's just not right well how's your body holding up yeah it's it's good um what i i was doing pilates and i and i thought i liked it more because um there was just like no spirituality and more strength but then now i've kind of gone back the other way and I'm like uh just focusing on the breathing and a bit of meditation because it's not like the place i go to is not super um, cult-like or religious or anything. It's just, you know, has some of that kind of meditation aspect and mindfulness. Yeah, in fact, I think that was kind of my favorite thing about yoga when I briefly tried practicing. Um, you know, it's like a framework for working that sort of mindfulness practice into your day-to-day, you know, into your exercise routine, which I think is really cool, useful. Yeah. Perhaps we should talk about the tennis. I I will preface our conversation by saying I'm not up to date on today's men's matches. I'm in the third set of uh, Rublev Chilich, um, which, you know, I can't say I'm all that excited about. (laughs) Today's quarterfinals were, I don't know, left a little bit to be desired. I know. I thinking about those four players and imagining one of them is going to be a French Open finalist. It's kind of wild, right? Yeah, I think maybe like sacrificial victim is uh, is a better way of framing it, um, given the way things are going on the men's side. But um, we should come back to that because I do want to start with the women, much like uh, the French Open seems to prefer to do every day. Uh, putting them in the early time slots and uh, we can talk about that certainly um, the uh, the men's night session as it uh, appears to be but uh, Iga Svantec I feel like might be taking a little bit of the drama out of the proceedings I mean it doesn't help that basically everybody else in the you know at the top of the game has fallen by the wayside Um, Mm. but she is now up to 33 consecutive wins and she plays Dasha Kasatkina in the semifinal. And hard to see her getting beaten at this point, but that's why they play. Yeah, to find out. Um, she is crazily dominant. She did lose a set, though, didn't she? To Zhang from China, to- who I had never never heard of before this tournament. Well, she's young, Zhang, isn't she? She's like, she's like 18, 19? Uh, yeah, she's 19. 19. 
Yeah. Um, so it makes sense that uh, I wouldn't have heard of her at this point. You know, I was even even going into that match. I mean, there was a little bit of hype about her having reached the fourth round, but she defeated Simona Halep, who was having panic attacks during their match, which is a shame. And then I think uh, she benefited from an injury retirement in the other in like the uh, second or third round match. Yeah, the third round. She beat Zanesco in the first round, um, who I don't know who that is. Yeah, and then, yeah, Halep, and then Alice Kone, who right. um, I really like. But, yeah, she Alize retired, injured yeah. in that match. Right. So it's, you know, hard to know how much uh, to put into a fourth-round appearance when two of the three kind of came with uh, extenuating circumstances. But, you know... She did take a set off of uh, the world number one, who I think they, they put up some stat during the match. She hadn't even dropped a set in something like 39 days. You know, it's uh, that's a, sort of the level of her of her dominance at this point. And today, today she beat Jesse Pegula pretty easily. Um, mm. So Jesse Pegula did not get to add to her match point total. She uh, she had 18 match points in her first two matches, but uh, none none on reserve for today. Do you think that match, Pagula versus Schwantek, could have been a candidate for a night match over one of those men's quarterfinals? Yeah, I think so. I, I think in this case, I mean, given today's lineup, you know, I mean, on the men's side, we have Andre Rublev versus Marin Cilic, and then we have Kaspar Ruud versus Holger Vydas-Nazgov-Runa. Um, well done. And on the women's side, right, we had Sviantek and Pagula. And what was the other match today? Kurt Matova uh, and Kasatkina. Right. So of the matches, I, I would say, I would hazard to say that the world number one on the women's side is potentially a bigger deal than anybody we're talking about on the men's side. Now, it's also not crazy to think, well, we put Iga Sviantek on a night match and the match is going to be over in about an hour. So, you know, in terms of like offering value. Um, but I don't know if that's really a good argument, given that, you know, value is sort of a subjective thing anyway, right? Yeah. Well, you look at um, Amelie Maresmo's comments about why she couldn't program um women's more women's matches and i think um it's clear from her comments that the the decision isn't entirely with her because they have a they have streaming service contracts for the um night matches especially and that's like especially important so if you if you get a five set men's match versus a two set women's match you're getting more advertising revenue. Um, and I think she also buys into the whole, well, at the moment, um, men's tennis is more popular than women's tennis. So if that's true, the way you help that to become more equal is to promote the women's game more, right? Right. But she's the tournament director and it's just like, yeah, and you would think as a woman she would care about um, the women's game and popularizing it more but it's like when you get into a position of power i think um in, in the bureaucracy the yeah there's all these stresses and pressures that um that you suddenly have and um 
she's rolling with that. She's not able to. Uh, it, it kind of, I, I immediately, when I read her comments, I immediately thought of Julia Gillard, the Australian Prime Minister, and Barack Obama, the American President. Both Julia, you know, we expected her to stand up for women's rights, and she cut the single parents um, benefit, mm. which negatively affected women. And like Barack Obama, um, you know, a black president, uh, supposedly progressive, but dropped more bombs on Iraq than George Bush did. Um, just, just as examples of positions of power tend to uphold the establishment, no matter who, if it's a man or a woman or a black or white. Yeah, I think, right, we, we might have our own expectations for these people when they come into these positions, like... Like we have, we apply our own sense of the symbolic, you know, what does it mean to have a black man as president in the United States? Like, you know, what also that there isn't, you know, it's not a totally homogenous set of, uh, of perspectives on what, you know, like a political leader might do in order to further a particular group's cause. Right. So of course, inevitably there's disappointment there, but more saliently, I think there's just what happens is that these people are changing their context, right? You know, we talk about in politics how like, you know, candidates being good at running for office is not at all, not even remotely, the skill set that qualifies you for being good in office. You know, the rules change. And in a democracy, unfortunately, there is that kind of like feedback loop where you can't hold on to the power without being reelected so you know your your actions end up getting filtered through that lens even though that's also not in necessarily in tune with making the best decisions um in the case of Moresmo i mean i don't know it it does feel like i just have this intuitive sense that the french open has been kind of the most regressive of the slams like in you know in this way You know, the tennis podcast is often complaining about the unequal treatment of women, like in terms of prize money and scheduling. Scheduling is just the hardest nut to crack, I think, because there's only so many slots, right? And there's only so much you can realistically do without potentially undermining your own efforts. But it it seems strange to me that they decided that the night sessions would be one match only, like... That's not the way it works at the U.S. Open, for example. You know, they have two matches and it's always a men's match and a women's match. And uh, then we get into arguments over who should have the first mat, who should have the first slot and who should have the later slot. And, you know, which is more fair. And I don't know if there's a real way to, to work that out. But in this case, it's just like there are night matches that are desirable because that's when people are free to watch television and... Like almost all of them have gone to men. I think one session has gone to women at this point. Yeah, it was a Elise Cornet match that went to the women. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and the other nine went to men. Yeah. But yeah. they've never done it before, have they? They've never had night matches at the French Open. So it's like very slowly, slowly. They. Um, yeah, and I don't think we can underestimate whatever deal has been made with television and how that affects um the decision making but i think it would also be incredibly popular if they just said look we're gonna it's gonna be 50 50 no matter what we're gonna um program women and men at the most popular time slot when everyone can watch 
Right. Sure. Sure. Like there might be like a Rafa match or a Djokovic match that then doesn't get to be on prime time, but uh, and and people would would complain. But overall, you would send a very good message, and I think the overwhelming goodness of that message would inspire and inspire goodwill and and stuff. You know, for the for the French Open and for for tennis in general, that would, that would translate to something tangible. Yeah, I agree. And then it just, it just ultimately, I think comes back to the bottom line and the, the difficulty in making that argument that like, you know, it, if we're trying to sell tickets to f- tennis fans and tennis fans are buying night session tickets, you know, months in advance, that can have good seats on the center court. They want the, it's, you know, they think it's reasonable to expect the best match, which is subjective. And so, of course, the people who are making the decisions just, you know, they, they, you know, they follow the straight line towards what they think is obvious. And um, yeah, I completely agree with you. I think spiritually it would be the right thing to do. And I think, you know, part of why I think the French seems more regressive in ways is like the difference in the crowd size between women's and men's matches is stark. I mean, much more so than at Wimbledon or the U.S. or Australian Opens. I like it often feels like okay men's matches can be packed and women's matches are empty and you know you it's hard to force change there right but I do think it starts with the kind of gesture you're talking about like find ways to get women equal screen time and promote that part of the sport yeah I don't know good reason to be disappointed in the way they've handled this first first night session and hopefully they make changes in the future Yes. What about Coco Golf though? Staying with the like positive story, I think like yeah. they could have put a Coco Golf match on on a night session. I reckon would be good. Yeah, she's a magnetic personality. She's fun to watch, and you know another it, like if you, when you look at tennis holistically, I certainly have a have a small bias towards men's tennis in terms of my current preferences. You know, I will probably watch more men's tennis overall. Just it's just the way things have shaken out for me. But, um, you know, you look at like, like, um, all the hype about Carlos Alcaraz at a, as a teenager breaking through and Coco Goff is younger and just reached her first major semifinal, which Alcaraz has not. So staying on Coco, it's really interesting because I was actually surprised to learn that she was only 18. It didn't, it didn't compute because she's been on tour. She made her breakthrough at Wimbledon, I think at 15. So it's, this is like her fourth year and coming up that young, you know, maybe, I don't know if she made the fourth round at Wimbledon her first time. It's like, there's all this excitement, all this, the potential of a teenager, like, you know, breaking through in this way. And she didn't really fulfill that potential entirely. I mean, she's a top 20 player. Her results have been, she's been on the upward trajectory. And here she is in a semi playing great tennis with a, with a real chance, I think. Uh, I think she's a strong favorite in her semi against Trevisan to make her first final, which is pretty exciting. Amazing. Um, and she has a chance at doing the doubles double. Mm, yeah, that, that's. I'm glad you you flagged that as our doubles correspondent. Yeah, is she is she is she playing with Pagula in the doubles? Yeah, she is. 
I think so. And I think there was it was there was a possibility until earlier today that they could meet in the final and play together in the doubles final. All right. Which uh, <laughs> doesn't happen very often. That'd be good. Yeah. Not going to happen. But um, yeah, she's a person who has played doubles uh, pretty consistently uh, since she's come up, even though she has this promising singles career and you know, there's always that argument that like you should conserve your energy at a certain point and, you know, not spend too much time on court. But I, I love that. It's old school. The, the players used to do both. And, you know, some of the old heads say, you know, it's a great way to improve your all court game. It will mean that you're tidy at net and everything. Um, so from a development point of view, she's, I think, ticking all the boxes. Yeah, I think even from a younger age, from her breakthrough uh, to to recognition at 15, she's always seemed mature beyond her years, which also contributes to that. This girl is 18 kind of feeling I get. Um, and that was also particularly striking. You know, if you look at the 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 um, confrontation she had with uh, with an umpire recently, did you did you come across this story? I'm just shocked because, like, even like after the match, like I tell, like, even since I was a kid, I told my dad, "Don't say anything." Like, shut up. No, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. <laughs> so that's why I'm like shocked because, like, what after said, every match, I literally tell him, "I just want you to clap. Don't say anything to me." No, no. That's why I'm like, what I what I try to say to him. Okay, I mean at that point you can just give me a coaching violation because like I, I can't control what he does with his hands. I mean I literally tell him since I was eight years old, don't talk to me in the match. Just no, clap. I mean, <laughs> No, no, I know what you're saying. I know you're not accusing me of anything. Maybe he's no, doing something no, no, that no. looks like coaching. I understand. I'm just letting you know that it's the first time a ref has said this to me. That's all. Okay. Marino um, had a serve broken after that because that would have broken her rhythm. I think Kodra <laughs> Goff's got a point there. Like, why didn't you wait till the changeover or like, because, um, or at least before Coco's next serve? It felt like she was, she was making her case in an assertive way without really being angry, you know? Like, she was, she was advocating for herself and being direct and acknowledging the umpire's humanity. And I think that was kind of one of the aspects that was striking because we see so often, especially on the men's side, so much bile and hate like directed towards the chair. Yeah. Yeah, there was no, there was like, um, yeah, she was making a case. I don't do any signals. We don't have any signals. But it wasn't like you're a, you're a, potato you're a um a weirdo you're the worst umpire in the game a weirdo you're the most corrupt official in the game and you can't do that kind of thing uh yeah it wasn't like coco was being nice but like she didn't cross that line of being personal you know like making it like into a, a personal thing and you know ascribing this you know this kind of villainous behavior to the umpire and um, anyway, for an 18-year-old to kind of handle that situation that way, because she was obviously frustrated by it, you know. I I feel like a lot of I mean, I also completely buy her argument that all, pretty much all the time those coaching violations happen, it has no impact on the game. You know, it's like 
it's like a coach is calling something out. It feels kind of arbitrary too, because they're allowed to be encouraging. You know, it's not like they have to be totally quiet. Yeah. They're allowed to like say, come on, good job, dude. Like all these kind of non-specific encouragements and um, comments. But as soon as you're like, well, maybe that hand is indicating that the racket should go in a particular direction or like, <laughs> or they should be placing, you know, their shots more into one area. It's very, the, the line there is very difficult. So the umpire is like, mm, did Mariana, the umpire there, say, think that a hand gesture was slightly more specific than in just in a, you know, like a encouraging um, yeah. Yes, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, and then you often get into these situations where, like, the coaches and the players speak a language that the umpire doesn't understand. You know, like we had that whole situation with, with I think it was with Tsitsipas where they they actually summoned a Greek uh, official to stand near Apostolos Tsitsipas to make sure that he wasn't delivering instruction <laughs> to, to his son. And then Steph, you know, is like. He's like, my dad is always trying to say shit and I'm not listening. Like, I'm really not paying attention. I mean, how could you know? Like, of of course, if if Apostolos is saying, like, you know, attack the second serve, move up, you know, that's very specific direction. And whether or not Stephanos is like processing it. I just think the whole thing is is such a silly distraction in a sport that like doesn't I don't know it doesn't have a lot of those and maybe it's it's I don't know it's kind of like one of these fun wrinkles that if we smoothed it out if we didn't have that kind of interruption anymore like if we just allowed coaching from the box I don't know how wrong would it go I know I know Alex is a big fan of of keeping it coaching free um I was I was thinking though maybe maybe there should be like a a thing where the coach is not allowed to speak so it's just there's no no speech allowed, but but hand signals would be allowed, you know. So you get something like baseball, where like, you know, the coaches are like pulling on their ears or like you know dusting off their shoulder, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that'd be interesting, and yeah, you would have to spend a bit of time with your coach, like working out the signals, and um, and then what happens because doesn't in baseball it happens that the other team tries to break the code and i'm like yeah. ah, if he dusts off once that means it's going to be a bunt i've noticed that or like I've, yeah like, <laughs> yeah and then they yeah that's that'll be fun well they've had they've there's actually been a fair bit of controversy in baseball over the last few years because the houston astros were caught stealing signs at the plate so it's one thing for the manager in the dugout to like make signs to indicate to runners on the base path what they should do right like okay yeah. run on contact you know like that'll be something they indicate and that's all totally above board now there's also the catchers making signals with their hands to indicate what the pitcher should throw like throw a fastball throw a curveball and if the batter has information about what pitch is coming that gives the batter a huge advantage so the astros were stealing signs with this really elaborate scheme where they were like they were, they were banging on garbage cans in the dugout somebody was like watching a video feed and like communicating all the way down and um ultimately they got into a fair bit of trouble with the league um after winning the world series um but it kind of came out that like a lot of teams were kind of trying to do similar things because well why wouldn't you? I mean, you're still you still have to break a code, right? So shouldn't like I find it more interesting 
to like let the codes exist and say like, you know what, you guys need to be a little bit more on your toes about how you're communicating with symbols, you know, like, um, but unfortunately what's actually happened in baseball is now they have electronic devices in the catcher's glove or something in the pitcher's glove. So the catcher can call a pitch without anybody seeing it. Oh, I think it's such, sad. yeah. It's classic baseball, like the catcher's signals, you know? Yeah. It's like, how do we remove the humanity from the sport in order to like try and work around this perceived cheating that most people don't really care about all that much. But also if your signs are being stolen, doesn't that say something about the signs? Yeah. It goes beyond one for a fastball and two for a curve. (laughs) Flip it up a little. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Like change it every inning. Like, like, you know, get this whole cryptographic scheme going. So like, you know, the number of fingers has to be like uh, added to some key that the pitcher has to memorize before each each game, you know. Like, right, right, yeah. I don't know. I think there's there's possibility there. And like instead they just like suck the life out of it, you know. Yes, this is the trend in sports where big money is involved. Yeah. I mean, I get why people care about fairness, right? Like people want the right calls made. Uh, You know, recently uh, Molly's brother has been coming over and watching some matches, you know, and he never watched tennis before in his life. Never. Never. I mean, well, I don't know never. Like, I mean, I'm sure he's seen it on television. It's not like I had to explain to him what the concept was. But, um, you know, he's like, he's a guy who, you know, he follows the NBA. We were watching some NBA games. So he's watching tennis the first time. He's like, man, I just love that there's just none of this, like, like the umps, the referees are not controlling the game like they do in the NBA. You know, they don't determine the outcome as much. I mean, you know, obviously NBA referees are trying to, like, make the games fair. Like, I don't think they're, you know, unless they're being paid off or something like they're just they're trying to do their job correctly. But they have so much control over how the game feels depending mm. on how they interpret all these kind of subjective rules, you know, like how much of a push is a foul, you know? And um, so anyway, he was kind of delighted by that. And that's always been something I love about tennis. There's just so much less bullshit. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, um, it could it could go the wrong way, but only to a certain degree because of the the elegance of the sport. You know, the fact that balls are either in or out fundamentally, you know. Um, recently, they were having a conversation about whether or not they should do video replay for not up um, calls. What do you think yeah. about that? Should they have video replay? I mean, I've seen the umpire get not up calls wrong before. It can be very um, close. But... You know, I'm for none of the technology, really. You know, I'm for like mm. I'm for line line umpires as well, because as you say, you know, it's it is it's an elegant game with umpires overseeing um, pretty clear things, whether a ball is in or out, or and the not up call is not a hard one to get most of the time. So, yeah, I just think. If you had a video for the not up calls that you were always re- that you are relying on, it means the human excellence in umpiring is kind of 
diminished. If umpires have to do the line calls on a hard court, you know, in real time with their own eyes, and and even if players' speeds on the server and their ground strikes are getting faster, it just means well, we just we push the, lim- the limits of what the human eye can can do. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And you don't have, and then, you know, and you do have the drama of like, oh, I thought it was in and you thought it was out. Or which one was it? Yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's just in and out calls should be, they're verifiable. I mean, we have yeah. the footage and if we can do it quickly, like immediately, then we should do it. But I, I am, I feel your argument. I notice the line judges at the French Open. In fact, they've, they were showing uh, during the, the Novak Rafa match last night. They kept switching to this view before the point started because, you know, there's so much time to fill when Rafa's uh, tugging on his underwear. Um, And they would go to this top-down view where you'd see the three line judges standing at the back, and then they would all kind of in unison go into the crouch, like as as the service motion started. And so there's like, I mean, that's the thing I love about it is the the pageantry and the the outfits and just that there's this this kind of whole human thing going on around the player. I would never want it to be reduced to two guys and a ro- you know, and a robot overseer. I think that's ultimately the wrong thing. Yeah, and you know, I always harp on about the choreography of it as well. Um like cuz even during play, you notice the safe calls from the umpire. When and I I like seeing that. I like seeing the eyes, just in the background, the eyes of the line judge noticing the ball, it's safe, mm. and the rally yeah. goes on. And, you know, like, yeah, I think it just goes to all of these eyes on the court watching mm. the intent, the intensity of it and people playing their part, whether they're, whether they're players or umpires or ball kids, and then the spectators as well. And it just I think it helps to magnify the whole thing. Um yeah, the technology for me is just a bit flat. And then when they, like the Australian Open, they, you know, they they do things like have frontline workers doing the out calls. So you hear like different voices going, out, 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 you know, whatever. Yeah, and um, it's the same ones over and over again, which is particularly creepy. Yeah, they could have like, a thousand different voices and you never you know they could like get an artist to like you know really design some kind of algorithm or you know play with the voices a little bit and make that fun but then the argument would be be a bit distracting or whatever it needs to be uniform i don't know um i just think oh that's that all that stuff just is a bit flat and when you have the real people it's it's like live theater or live theater theater versus Watching the theater on television, it's never as good. A live concert, well, like an album versus a, yeah, an album has its thing as well. But I mean, like the live concert experience can't really be replicated on a, on a record. Yeah, I guess the, the comparison would be more like listening to a concert on the radio versus being present. Being there, with, yeah. With the concert and feeling the energy from the, the crowd and the, and the performers. I was just thinking as you were talking about the performative aspect about how much um, how much enjoyment I get out of certain umpires and the and their their way 
of expressing themselves. You know, Mo Layani in particular is somebody that Molly and I are just endlessly amused by. Like he mm. just, cause, and he, ha he does this thing where he regularly, he just changes his intonation, his inflection, his points of emphasis every time he, he calls the same numbers, right? And obviously a robot could say 1530, but when Mo does it, it's like 1530, 1530, mm. you know, like every time he does it and he has this. We're, we're not really sure if he's like keyed into the drama and he's trying to like reflect the tone because sometimes it feels like, oh, it's danger time, 1540, you know? Yeah. But sometimes <laughs> it feels like he's just completely oblivious and just kind of randomly picking ways to express himself. I, yeah, I, he's one of my favorite umpires. I love his voice um, and his charisma. And that's the great thing. That's a great thing about the chair umpires is what they bring um, personality-wise. I have noticed that umpires, I think they do, they do know the drama and the tension um, of where the match is. And if it's 15 love, 30 love, 40 love, you know, like if someone's just motoring through a service game, there's no need to really, it's matter of fact, it's matter of fact. But then when there's, 15, 30, 30 all, you know, like 30, 40, you know, like it's, uh, they maybe put a bit more personality or a bit more of a questioning tone into the, um, what are you going to do now? It's now, now you're down break point. Yeah. And, um, mm. I believe they do. I believe they put tone. Yeah. And they should, cause they are, th their role is not strictly to call the match for officiating purposes. They are the voice of the match. And so, you know, I was just I was just thinking about even the concept of something like break point, break point, set point, match point. Like we have these phrases that like indicate the heightened value of a point, right? Like that you can you just derive that from the numbers. Like you can look at the screen and see what the situation is in the and the match. Like this is something I'm also really keyed into with tennis like I can just look at the Rublev Chilich match right now see that they are in my playback this is a recording so it's in progress they're in the fourth set it's a game apiece uh Chilich is up two sets to one after dropping the first set like there's a story encoded in the numbers right which is uh, fucking brilliant I love that I love that about yeah, about tennis in particular I think there's more narrative in the score than any other sport that I can think of. Um, and yeah, and like the the chair umpire's role as the as the sort of like master of ceremonies and kind of like bringing the event to life, I think is really important and probably overlooked a fair bit, certainly by players who are rude to umpires. Um, but yeah, um, I love that you appreciate that. You know, Mo Laiani, another thing he does that I love is he, He's always acknowledging the rest of the staff, the ball kids. He like points at people and like kind of gives them a nod to, you know, he'll look at a line judge and, you know, give them a thumbs up when they've made a good call. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. That's, an, that's another great reason to not get rid of line judges. When I did the line, line umpire training um, in Sydney, the, they're explaining that the chair umpire always 
um, is evaluating you and you will get an evaluation. This is how you kind of move up in the, you know, to get to umpire big mm. matches and they look at your performance. Um, so that acknowledgement is like, um, I guess, a way of the umpire to keep track of who's doing what on the court. Um, and you, you might make a mistake and you might want to say sorry to the to the chair umpire let, to let the chair umpire know that you know that you did um, something wrong. So there, there's a lot, a lot of that going on behind mm. the scenes. So Coco Goff is scheduled to play Martina Trevisan. Um, and I was wondering if she's ever played outside of Roland Garros. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen her outside of Roland Garros. And I knew that she made the quarters a few years ago. Like she had that out of nowhere run and she's oh, got, she? I just, yeah, yeah. This is, this is not a one hit wonder situation. She's actually done this before. I mean, she hasn't been to the semi, but um, so she actually took a step forward. She, she felt like one of those players that it was like, okay, she had a great draw and she had a couple really big wins and she just got herself into that position. But, you know, like off of, out of the main stage, Roland Garros experience, she just, you know, didn't really have results that were all that noteworthy. And here she is again, going on a deep run and actually taking a step further, which is really amazing. And I, I find her incredibly charming and fun to watch. Like she's just got that like, you know, kind of feisty, uh, fighting spirit. And, uh, she's just, you know, her personality is just really on display and, Right. Um, and I, I tend to, you know, be drawn to players like that. But I also feel like, you know, at this stage, I'm like, she can't win it all. Right. This is this is just be crazy. Thing. That'd be crazy. But you never know. She's only got to win two matches. Uh, I'd love to see her win because, you know, she's one of those um, players that are, you know, obviously elite to to be you know in a in the top 100 in the world in a game like tennis you have to be amazingly good and a very hard worker but she's 28 and she's her highest ranking is 59 so it's not like she's been a superstar she's had to work hard and just hang in there getting bits and pieces um she um she's also only um five three like about five three so mm. I always love a, a shorter player because I think um, I relate one thing. <laughs> but, yeah. um, you know, just also, you know, you look at um, the shorter players and they they usually they have to be very scrappy. They have to run a lot. They have to um, fight for every ball. Um, they rarely overpower other players. So they have to find, you know, these interesting ways of winning points. Do you, I haven't actually watched much of Martina Teresa, though. Is do you get that impression from her style of play? Is that is that kind of how she plays? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She chases a lot of balls down, just like makes her opponent play one more shot. She's she's clearly, you know, best on the clay because it allows her to use her physical strength and kind of dogged determination to stay in these matches. And I think she kind of like drives her opponents a bit nuts in that way, but she doesn't, you know, like I think often smaller players, you know, 
might tend to be a little bit leaner in stature. She's, you know, she's got like, she's got some strength to her. She's got some powerful legs and, um, yeah, she's an impressive player who's in a grand slam semifinal for a reason. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's going to be hard to root for her against Coco Goff, but, you know, I felt the same way. Like she just beat Layla Fernandez, who is, you know, one of my favorites at the moment. And I still found myself kind of rooting for her because of how much of an underdog she is. It's like you're saying, like we were talking about Adrian Jafitrimo last week and yeah. uh, Le- Leolia Jean Jean, you know, these kind of like under the radar French wild cards and, you know, rooting for them. And Adrian Jafitrimo did not beat Carolina Pliskova, but Leolia Jean Jean did. And, um, you know, unfortunately, no deep run for these players because you you know when a French player like goes on an out of nowhere run, the the crowd just gets so behind them. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, actually, you know, the French crowd, I have very mixed feelings about. But they, I really do respect the fact that they love their own. Oh, we should talk about the the retirements because we had that beautiful. Joe Wilford Sanga retirement, which was, you know, like, I mean, you could argue it was kind of over the top. They brought out every one of his past coaches and everybody in his family and gave him this oh, trophy and a video. <laughs> <laughs> All the French, the other French players that had possibly ever played with him in the career, in his career. Yeah, it was and like they all had the amazing um, thing. Merci, um, Merci Joe. Um, yeah. T-shirts. <laughs> yeah, it's it's amazing how much love was there for him. Now, Joe Joe Willie like was obviously a very charismatic player, and he's beaten all the top guys. I mean, he was uh, what did he get to number five in the world? I think. Um, I mean, he was a great player who you know maybe would have broken through if he didn't play in the era of the big three, you know. But um, he did get to one Slam final. But the, that level of of treatment, that that the the show of affection, you know, and so Gilles Simone showed up for his retirement, and then Gilles Simone also um, went, uh, you know, went into this Roland Garros, like acknowledging that he was going to retire. I, I don't think it's immediately after this event. I think he's retiring this year. Yeah. Um, but like, you watch Gilles Simone matches, and like, I like Gilles Simone, but he's never been somebody I've gotten excited about. You know, and he's always been like the third, second or third best French guy from his generation. And they love him. The You know, there's the Gilou chant and like they just the, the French crowd gets so behind their own. And it's really it's it's a real contrast to the U.S. where half the time we're just like we just can't even be bothered with with our own people. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Like um, Joe Wilfried had a had a horn section. Um <laughs> in in the crowd for his, for his last match um yeah people were singing songs it was it was really moving and um there was also a really interesting like the umpire played a really note notable role in that match i don't know if you saw the end of it um basically he got hurt and was ready to retire before like he was up a break in the fourth and was serving to send it into a fifth but he was injured and he could yeah, he basically he a couldn't injury he couldn't serve or yeah. hit, hit very well yeah he at one point after the injury he he hit a lefty uh, ground stroke cuz he just had nothing left 
Yeah, but, did that um, go in, the lefty ground? I think shoot? it went in, yeah, but I don't think oh. he won the point. I don't know if he won a point after the injury. But he was ready to retire after he got broken and it was put into a tie break. And the umpire said to him, and I feel like this is like this could cross a line if it wasn't the situation it was, but the umpire oh, who was cares? like- it's Joe Wilfrey's last match. Well, exactly. And the, and the ump was like, hey, do you want to call a doctor? Maybe let's just see if we can treat it, give it a go. Yeah. And and so Joe called the doctor and he went back out there and he lost all seven points in the breaker. But like that was such a like such a beautiful act of kindness for the umpire to to like encourage Joe to finish the match, finish your last match. Like oh, get I know it's it. like a movie, like when the hero doesn't win against all odds, but they do the next best thing and fight to the end and everyone cries. Um <laughs> And leave the cinema saying that was beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it's almost like it was orchestrated. Although, I'm sure one last victory would have been nice for him. No, it wasn't because I mean, he was um, he was going to play doubles as well. Um, Gasquet asked Songa, um, "Hey, can you can you enter the doubles with me? Because um, it's your last tournament, and I want to share the moment with you." Um, so they were going to mm. do that, but they had to withdraw because of Songa's injury. He gave everything to his to the last moment. Yeah, he was crying. You think he served underarm in the in the tiebreaker? He did. Yep. Well. Yeah. Farewell, Joe. Farewell, and Simon will get. I suspect he will get his own farewell ceremony, maybe at the Paris indoors um, at the end of the year. Because he's not retiring mm. to the end of the year. And then it will just be Monfils and Gasquet of the Four Musketeers. When are they going to retire? I reckon they'll try and stagger them so they each get their own special ceremony. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they really set the bar pretty high with that Sangha ceremony. I, I can't imagine any of the big three having that kind of send-off, even though clearly they would receive something kind of on that level. But... It, it also like, I don't know, it feels like they're all kind of, well, certainly Roger and Rafa are closer to calling it quits. And there's been some whispers that like, you know, Rafa has said in press, like, maybe this is my last Roland Garros. So I go out there every time, you know, you know, with that kind of mentality. And so that's got people thinking like maybe, you know, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if both he and Roger just called it quits without you know like because just the, the hullabaloo you know like this is rafa's last roland garros like the ticket prices being you know at the, in the secondary market and the insanity of the focus on every match it's just like i don't think they really want that i mean maybe they wouldn't mind the ceremony but that extra attention is so crazy you know and um, uh and it seems like federer he might be doing that with you know, Labor Cup or the the event in Basel. I don't know which one's first, but you know, just kind of doing it his own way and not not like announcing it in advance. Like this will be my last tournament. You know, I feel like Roger probably thinks he can go to Basel and win, and then and then call it off. You know, in the trophy ceremony. I think that's that's probably the the dream. Will he play Wimbledon? No, he's not playing Wimbledon apparently which is telling, I suppose. I mean, he may just need more time, but he hasn't played since last year's Wimbledon, I think. So 
it's been quite the the rehab journey for him, you know. Um, so kind of seems like yeah, one last home tournament plus exhibitions. You know, he's he's he'll show up in exhibitions from time to time. I think. You know what I reckon. He could be a real, he could be a doubles champion, David. Play the doubles. You only have to cover half the court. He's excellent at net. Still got to serve. He'd be, he'd be lethal. Yeah. Well, he has been. I mean, he won gold medal in doubles with uh, Warinka one year. Um, yeah, but how many grand slams at doubles has he won? Oh, I don't think he's won any. But that, yeah, that's a, I love that idea. Somebody should uh, call him up. Go out there and win. 20 doubles grand slams as well. Have a second career as a doubles specialist. Yeah, that would definitely bolster his goat argument. If in his <laughs> 40s he won like double digit doubles right. championships. And, the, and that's the only thing he cares about, right? His place in the goat argument, not his family, <laughs> spending time with his family, traveling, and all of that. Well, that, yeah, like uh, during Sangha's retirement ceremony, he's like, you know, it's probably a bad translation, but I think he said something like, well, I guess I will put my family first again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, like there's always seems like there's this like that is a reason, but there's that kind of reluctance like, oh, am I just going to be unemployed at home and taking care of the kids? Is that is that the only thing left? Like, am I really done? You know, I don't know what Sangha will do with his post career life, but, you know, these guys are young. You know, with Sangha 37 years old or something like it's it's got to be a little strange to have a retirement ceremony when you're in your 30s, you know? Yeah, uh, totally. Yeah. So um, speaking of uh, of players who might be retiring, uh, Rafael Nadal beat Novak Djokovic uh, again. At Roland Garros, did you watch that match, uh, David? Because I so, in my defense, <laughs> I don't have. Uh, I, I'm doing it tough financially at the moment. I don't have access to a streaming service. Mm. Okay. Um, and but I do. I could have watched it live, but it would have been at four forty-five in the morning. Oh geez. And I just hadn't had enough sleep. So I, I got to work, right? I got to work in the admin center where I work at Sydney Uni. And I did put up the final points on on the computer and I saw the end. It was all like the last three or four points after the last change of ends in the tiebreaker. And um prior to that I was in the cafe looking at the um looking at the results and the the barista if i'd been watching it on delay the barista would have spoiled it for me he said <laughs> and he was so aussie about it as well he was like ah oh, jocks up five two in the fourth <laughs> uh, and i like and i'm like who do you want to win mate and he's like oh probably nads <laughs> jock and nads Jock and Nads, yeah, that's that's one way to look at those I've never guys. Heard that <laughs> and then, yeah. Um, yeah, but we thought it was going to go to a fifth, but then, by the time I got to work, it was almost over. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Djokovic had that early break in the fourth, and 
you think like for sure he'll be able to get across the line. And even in that tie break, I mean, Rafa had five match points, I think, and Novak saved three of them and was in, you know, was in a rally on the fourth. Like it was getting interesting there at the end. Yeah, but, that's um, that's what I saw. I saw that like holding the five match points and then and then Djokovic coming back and then that last rally. I got to see I got to see that five, which was um a bit of a thrill. Yeah, it was it was a good match, but it didn't it didn't have that electric feel that the match had last year, even though it was probably a little tighter throughout. Like last year's match was weird because Rafa just blitzed Novak in the first set. Novak started coming back and then it was two of the best sets of tennis you'll ever see. And then no, and then Rafa was hurt in the end and kind of went away. And this match I think had a little bit, it was a little tighter all around. And I, I feel like unfortunately, maybe this is cause I was, I'm rooting for Novak so hard in that, in that particular matchup and in that, in that scenario at Roland Garros, um, you know, one like both players are totally healthy in form. Like this is this is what we want to see. But like Novak was a little off. Like he wasn't. I mean, there were times when he when he you know when he won the second set where he looked tremendous. But it it really did feel kind of like it was all on Rafa's side again. You know, like when Rafa started throwing in some errors, that's when he got behind. But he tightened it up for long enough you know to to get through and my god he's gonna win number 14 isn't he i mean i i think zverev has a real chance against him i think zverev, is, as much as i hate to admit it has a real chance too that's why i really want to see that match because it'll be one of my favorite players versus yeah, someone that i really don't like at all yeah it's it's a tough one for me because I really dislike both, but for very different reasons, you know, like I basically always root against both of them. I mean, I always root against Zverev and I basically always root against, I can't remember the last time I rooted for Rafa. So on, on the one hand, I guess it's a situation where I could say, well, if I'm ever going to root for Rafa, it'll be right now, <laughs> but I just don't think I'm going to be able to take as much pleasure in it. And I just, I don't know, he's hes so insane at Roland Garros. I mean, what, what is his record now? 109 and three or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And do you, do you know another crazy stat? Because he, he had that um, five-set match with uh, Felix Ojeda-Liassim. Yeah. That's only the third time. <laughs> I know. He's been to five sets at Roland Garros. Yeah. It's uh, wild. Uh, wild. And he's won all of them. Yeah. The, the three times he's lost were in shorter matches. And you could argue that he wasn't fully fit in two of them. Um, as well, if you're a Rafa diehard and you hate Novak, you'd probably do that. But um, Novak has beaten him twice here. And that's something nobody else will ever do. Um, even if he loses somehow in the next two matches or next year i don't think anybody will beat him more than once and it's also like so finally to get to carlos alcaraz who you know has been incredible all year and just seems like he's ready to kind of win a slam as a teenager i mean he definitely is on that level with these guys like he lost to zverev in a quarterfinal he's never been past a quarter at a major which you know 
He's eight, he's 19. That's okay. Um, that doesn't mean he's not going to win a fistful of them. But he has lost twice at Roland Garros, and Rafa has lost three times. <laughs> like, it's just like you try to compare what Rafa has done with anybody, anybody's achievement almost anywhere, and it just seems ludicrous in comparison, you know, what he's done there. It's incredible. So that's my, my begrudging respect for, for Rafa Nadal. Yeah, what do you think about, does he take too long between points? Oh, 100%. I was actually cheering when they finally gave him a time violation. It was insane yesterday. I mean, Novak is slow too. We had just watched the previous Chilich match, and like I was just reminded of how how like Chilich takes forever, and he ba- but he has this weird anxious rhythm. Like he twitches his his calf. Remember when we were at the the match that time forgot, and you know with Chilich against um, Dimitrov. Uh, no, it wasn't Dimitrov. It was oh, um, Raonic. Raonic. Yes, you're right. Yeah, and I just like I. It feels like, in my memory, it's like the scene as you're losing consciousness before death or something. Like I can hear the birds chirping, and the like bounce of the ball, the arrhythmic bounce of the ball, and it, it's like, oh my god, I'm I'm losing, you know, I'm going to die. This is, this is the end for me. Um, and Chilich, you know, but Chilich doesn't take more time than Novak or Rafa. I think he's just he's in that same category of a slow player with a lot of ball bounces, but it's so much t- more tense and weird. Um, but but that's part of it, right? Like with Rafa, there's that uh, there's the OCD ness. It's like I'm going to clean the line and scuffle and pick my wedgie and shoulder shoulder brow brow. You know, like bounce bounce you know like there's there's something so odd and mechanical about his routine um that i just find so annoying <laughs> like i just can't it's so hard to watch and um yeah, novak is slow but you know he kind of is just doing his thing right i i would think that like it's just so normal it's so ubiquitous the nadal ticks that it becomes kind of this ordinary flow of like when you're watching a nadal match that just it just happens because it's the same every time so doesn't that give you i mean for me i think it's kind of comforting yeah i think it just comes down to personal preference like your hatred for him well yeah i mean but it's it's the hatred is I mean, hatred's a strong word. My, you know, rooting against him, disliking him as a player. It's like, it's just, it's personality. It's just he, it, I find him annoying. Like, I, I don't, I don't take pleasure in his celebratory, like, leaps in the air every time, every fucking time he wins a big point, even though <laughs> I generally am pro celebration and emotion. It's just like, there's something about how, rehearsed everything seems how repetitive these things are the the the, arranging the water bottles and unfolding the towel and adjusting it it makes me want to scream like the way everything is so patterned with him and and it's in his game he's fucking relentless he it at some point early the first set last night he was so good it just felt like there is no way you can hit the ball past him like like 
Novak would hit a crushing ball to Rafa's backhand. And he'd somehow just arrive there and do this like sweeping slice and put the ball exactly where he wanted to on Novak's side. It just, it's just weird. I, I just, I don't know. I just have trouble with it. it. It's like bothers some part of my brain that expects like imperfection in human beings, you know? Yeah, no, I think the imperfection is something I really like, I like to see, but I'm also worried for other players because, you know, if I see a player who's maybe like a lesser player than Nadal, you know, someone who's fighting for their best result in a slam or whatever, but they can't find a certain thing in their tennis bag, like an energy bar or an extra shoe or shirt or something. (laughs) And, you know, are they worried about like the water? Are they not getting the right temperature water from? And I'm like, wow, you know, don't you know, like you need to be supremely focused right now and you can't let these little things bother you. (laughs) And I I really feel for them, um, whoever it is. But um, I guess Rafa is so meticulous that he prepares for any eventuality because he's so prepared and he has all these processes that that is um a key part to his success yeah for sure it's like it's trained into him to like the most extreme degree but you know it's not that human is your your point is i think that it's kind of mechanical rehearsed it's uh it's not the human drama as much that we um that we enjoy to watch. Yeah, I I feel more watching Novak, you know, even though he can also be mechanical in his way and he's he's so great that sometimes it just feels like unfair to the other players, but like there's so much more dramatic arc to his story. And same thing with Federer, you know, I'm Federer, I I you know, I've almost got this like sad association with him like for me Federer's got more tragedy in his story like I remember the bad losses I remember the you know the disappointments a little bit more and with you know so so on the flip side like it's like for Rafa to lose at Roland Garros is so joyful for me because it is so precious it's so rare and I take delight in how how unhappy he is you know it it's interesting like you know talking about the other player that i will be rooting against uh sasha zverev it's like i i dislike him so much personally that i can delight in his double faults right but that's the kind of humanity that like he shows that some of the that you know that's that's his kryptonite he gets nervous late in matches and i love it when zverev double faults (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah i know it's it's just something to, that we can relish in oh by the way so i just wanted to mention you know uh holger vitus nadskov rune and mm. his mother both liked the instagram post that um that he was tagged in because he was on the album art for uh for episode 41 and um you know, and it's funny because I was mostly talking about him with Alex and we were basically just talking shit, you know, and I, I wonder if uh, if Holger has listened, you know, it's. Uh, 
wonder if he's the sort of person who's like, I wonder what these randos, randos have to say about me and my game. What did you, I must've missed that part. What did you and Alex say about, about him? Well, I, so for me, I was just sharing an anecdote where at Indian Wells, I went and saw him and there was this guy behind me in the stands who was like, just monologuing about how great Runa was and how like he's as good as Federer was at the same age and like just going on and on. He's 18 and like he's just he's good. He's so good. He's going to be a Grand Slam champ and just like loudly proclaiming all of this behind us where we're looking behind us being like, could you please shut the hell up? Like this is ridiculous, you know, <laughs> like it, just nonstop, you know, and, and that guy that kind of put us all off from Runa, even though it had nothing to do with Runa. And Alex, I think it just doesn't like, like Runa has said like, yeah, I'm going to, I believe I can be number one in the world someday. Like he's, he's got that cocky self-belief. And I think that turns Alex off. And, uh, and we, you know, so I asked Alex, like, do you think, um, do you think, is this like, I don't know. He seems like a really good player, but is he that good? Like, is he the next Alcaraz? And, and Alex was like, no, nah. <laughs> but here he is, you know, like he's, he's in the quarterfinals. Uh, he might be further. I don't know yet. So I'll find out later tonight. And he's playing Casper uh, Rude. Yeah. In the, in the Rue section of the draw. Rude, Rude previously beat Rusevori. If Rublev wins this match and Rude wins his, he'll have to beat Rublev. So. It's it's like a computer had like a sorting error and accidentally put all the ruse on one side of the draw. <laughs> oh man. Rusevari Reed Runa Rubla. Pass lost. It was a bummer. Yeah, I was wondering how you're feeling about Pass's loss. Yeah. Bummed out. I mean, mm. He wasn't good the whole tournament. I mean, he had an easy third round win over, um, what's his name, Michael Lemer from Sweden, who's just clearly an inferior player. But, you know, and he had a tough first rounder against against Musetti, who's a good player who seems to have trouble closing. Um, And then the second round, you know, there was this guy out of nowhere, um, uh, Zdenek Kolar, who was really fun to watch and had you know had his own had his initials stitched into his own like clothing and everything and had like all these this this like really weird twitchy like uh, return position like he was a lot of fun and, and yeah it was kind of cool that he did so well because that guy's never been a top one hundred player and he is twenty five almost twenty six. Yeah, uh, he's one that I would be pretty delighted to see become a regular and like you know start to like actually make make some some inroads. But um, it felt like in every match. I mean, discarding the Emer match, which was just the kind of one way traffic you would expect from a guy in Tsitsipas's position. Like he, the crowd was against him in every match, and I think. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't blame crowds for getting behind underdogs, but like, it, it feels in a way he's starting to bring it on himself. Like he's starting to kind of become a little bit of a miserable player. Like he just doesn't show joy. He plays this joyful style, and when he's in full flight, he, I love watching him. 
but he just seems like, I don't know, he seemed anxious and like just off. And he had a great clay court season. I mean, he, you know, like great results throughout, you know, only lost to top players. Um, you know, he lost to Djokovic, Zverev, and, and, uh, um, and Alcaraz. He won Monte Carlo. He was in the final in Rome. Like he had a great, he's great on clay, but he did not seem at his best. And it was just, I feel like it's like the pressure you know trying to back up the finalist points he had a clear road there was no there's nobody in that half i mean the other seed was medvedev who got totally drummed by chilich um you know and you know i think casper Ruud would have been the top challenge but yeah yeah where, where did chilich come from like why is he playing well all of a sudden yeah yeah, you know, I realized that he's been a finalist at every major except for the French. Oh. Yeah, he, he lost Australian Open and Wimbledon finals to Federer, and he won the U.S. Open. And here he is. I mean, we're in a fifth set now. He could be in this. He could absolutely, any of these four, I think, could get to the final, although I still have trouble seeing it with, with, uh, with uh, the kid, with Runa. Um, just because I don't know, but like, where did it come from? I don't know. He's not a good clay port court player historically. Um, I mean, his his seed is what twenty, so he's been having some pretty good results. But um, to play this well in this situation, I mean, the match he played to beat Medvedev, he was totally on fire. Like he just he looked like he was on another level from Daniil, and. Um, yeah, I don't know. Pretty surprising, all things considered. You know, with um, with Tsitsipas, Goran Ivanisovic reckons that um, he's very much haunted by the loss in last year's final to Djokovic. Yeah, being up two sets to love. Yeah, and notices him arguing with his mom and dad now, and just maybe carrying some negative energy um, maybe ruminating too much on the past which would sort of um, go to what you were saying about like he doesn't seem like he still plays well but like in the moments where you know between points he's not doesn't look happy yeah it seems like it's it's painful for him and he has trouble with the expectation and every time he kind of gets in his head and starts thinking about where he's supposed to be or where he's going to go in that tournament or like he just he's had a lot of trouble being he's had a lot of trouble with leads i've seen him blow all kinds of like uh you know like oh i'm like serving from the match opportunities it's like i just feel that the break is coming you know he just doesn't and it feels like he's plateaued, you know? I mean, he's been at this level for a couple of years now. And he keeps having good results, so it's not like he's gone away, but there's something, it's like he's missing that perspective, the the ability to reset, the ability to let go. I feel like he needs a serious meditation practice. He needs, um, I think he, he really needs a girlfriend. I think he's just like, there's something, like he's, he's not getting it out. He's not... I mean, I don't know about his personal life at all, but, you know, imagine being 23 and just having your parents with you all the fucking time, you know? It's like, yeah, it would suck. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be into it. I don't know. It depends on your relationship with your parents, I guess, but... 
Sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's normal to not want to be around your parents or to like want to do your own thing at a certain age. And like, I don't know, he doesn't strike me as a person who seems like he does super well with change. Like, it's not like, oh, he's going to, you know, he's just going to like get rid of his family and just like hire a coach and just change everything. And that's going to be good for him. Like, I, I think he probably needs a certain kind of routine, but I don't know. He's going to have to change something. I mean, he's only 23. He's still, he's got the, he's got the, his whole career in front of him still, but it, it feels a little off, you know? I think, I think Alcaraz bums him out. I think the fact that he can't beat these, like this younger kid came along and has just beaten him three times, you know? And he's like, he thought his window was opening, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe he needs to do some yoga and realize that winning or losing is about coming back to the breath, realizing that we're all one with the universe and that all this stuff is just stuff. Trophies, titles. At the end of the day, there's a greater purpose for us all. Mm. Maybe you should uh, drop him a line on Instagram, you know. Yeah, I'm sure I'd be thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> Random advice from a stranger. <laughs> you should definitely get off of social media. That's another thing. Like, just disconnect, you know, be present. Like, spend or, time with people you love, you know. Right. What if he did the Ash Barty thing and took a year off to focus on his photography? Hmm. And, like, what pursued if? that and, like, had shows, um, had gallery shows, and went on residencies, and you know, did that for a while. He'd play a bit of tennis, uh, or maybe he wouldn't play tennis at all. Um, and then, you know, he could come back, he'd get wild cards, he might have a new lease on life. When Ash Barty did that, she became number one. Yeah, there are definitely people I think could benefit from the extended break. You know, Andreescu just took one. Cannon just took one. I think there were injury aspects to those, but like, I feel like those are players. Cannon's very similar, right? Like, I mean, she's won a slam, been to another final, but then just fell off. And her relationship with her dad, like her dad is a total nervous wreck, um, clearly a tense relationship when he's coaching. You know, I mean, Steph's dad is always, get, he gets coaching warnings in basically every match. And it's like, whether like that's gotta affect you at a certain point it's not your fault like it's just dad in the box doing dad shit again and like it seems like Steph doesn't seem like it bothers him too much but it's like i don't know you, he's just gotta find something else I, I, it's hard to see how he steps forward from where he is now you know like i think taking a break is a great idea but I kind of feel like he's just going to keep grinding and keep grinding. And I don't know if there's happiness there for his personality. I think he had this notion when he was younger that he was going to be the greatest of all time. You know, I think he believed it. He, he believed in his talent. He was taught that, that it would be true if he could imagine it. And, and like, and it was all up, all, all upward trajectory for, for many years. And then suddenly you're at that very top and you're right there about to win the French. You don't get it. And, you know, that happens. 
you got to be able to let it go, and I just don't know if he's learned how to do that yet, and hopefully he does. So, in summary, uh, regular psychotherapy, meditation practice, yoga, girlfriend, uh, quit for a year, and uh, become a professional artist, pursue your art, uh, get some gallery shows going, uh, spend more time with your friends, and I think you'll be all right, Steph. It's our blueprint for Steph winning his first Grand Slam. <laughs> yep, that's it. There's nothing to do with the tennis. And you know what? He gets to relive that upward trajectory because he'll come back without a ranking. Mm. He'll have to get wild cards into tournaments. Right. Play some challengers. He'll creep up. Yep. Yeah, I like it. Uh, just, I wanted to mention the cardigans. Oh, yeah, the cardigans. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, for the ball kids, the line judges. Yeah, Lacoste cardigans. And I love what Lacoste does with the the uniforms every year. They all they have the French Open logo and the crocodile. Um, and they, they're a big fashion and they're very much uniforms with stripes and, and cardigans. You don't see cardigans very often employed as a line judge uniform. Yeah, it's a very classic look. And do they not have like the the shirts, the, like the sleeves tied, or is that is that just in my imagination? It's just the like, oh, you know, do when they? you like do they... drape a sweater over yourself oh, and tie yes, the they sleeves. Do. Yeah, yeah. Which is... that, that's not the way it is. That's just like how it is in my imagination. I think. I think they might have. I think I've noticed that before. There's like a special way that you. You can drape your sh- overshirt over you if you're not wearing it anymore. Yeah, I'm just looking at a ball kid wearing his, you know, peach and blue ball kid outfit. It's the line judges who have the the real the real kit. Mm. Yeah. Well, anyway, it is good. I mean, the French certainly plenty to talk about on the fashion side. I, I like randomly highlighted a very, very bad outfit from uh, Marin Chilich that doesn't look as bad in photograph, actually. But when we were watching it the other day, we were like, what in the world? Like, there's just so much weird clashing in, like, what is a very, like, normal, boring kind of sport piece, you know? Like, yeah. there's these stripes of, like, you know, teal gradient going into, like, broken up by white and pink and white and then a red gray, red to orange gradient and like there's this reflective uh, head logo that just looks totally out of place it's very looks very cheap yeah it's so like <laughs> sports as well like um just came out sports like sports color stripe head logo right um yeah and head make great rackets, but they, they're not known for their clothing lines. I know um, Krajikova won the French Open last year wearing head, but mm. has now moved to Lotto or like, or Fila, no, she's moved to Fila, mm. which is okay. predictable. You don't stay a head um, athlete very long after you win a Grand Slam. Although Chilich is pretty big and is wearing head. He must have got, they must have paid him a lot of money to wear. 
Yeah, I mean, in Croatia, you know, maybe it's like kind of the, the budget sport line is like a big deal. And the fact that he wears head is like really moving units in uh, Zagreb or wherever he's from. Zagreb, Serbia? Might be Serbia. What's a Croatian city? Split? Split. Oh, yeah, like on the coast. Split's supposed to be really beautiful, isn't it? Belgrade. Belgrade. Serbia? Oh, no, Belgrade, Serbia. Oh, Croatia. I think Split might be too. We'll have to, we'll have to get Davy Gravy to check our geography. Um, anyway, that's, that's my working theory there, but yeah, not a guy who seems particularly concerned with fashion. What we were watching the other night, Molly was like, why does this guy look so old? <laughs> like, I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, he is, he's old relative to other players, but he, you know, he does, he looks like, he looks like he's had some hard years, Marin Cilic, you know? Like, in the, in the way I think that, like, people from that part of the world, it's just like, they have very dark complexion and it's like really rugged beards and like, you know, even though he's like 36 years old or thereabouts, he definitely looks like he could be, you know, a fair bit older and you know like a guy who's got three kids and has chain smoked for 20 years you know kind of kind of the vibe yeah how old is he uh, i said i don't want to google while his match is still in the balance but yeah he's got to be late late 30s 35 36 i'm guessing mid 30s mid 30s old it's an old man oh so old <laughs> They're all babies to me now. I forgot what, how old I was this week. Oh, that's good. It's an interesting phenomenon because it clearly happens at a certain point when you just stop giving a fuck. So that's that's kind of the good part. But it, it's also a little unsettling. Like, like oh, I forgot like my middle name or something. I thought I was still 43, but I'm actually 44 years old. And it's okay. It doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. The Tennis Tragic thanks you for listening. All correspondence and feedback can be directed to tennistragicpod at gmail.com and our Instagram is at tennistragicpod. <laughs>